available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Baptist Broadcast. Thank you for tuning in. If you are watching on YouTube, please do not forget to click the subscribe button and the bell for continued notifications so that you can be notified when we drop new content. Benjamin Keach and his use of Lutheran theologians. I think this is a really important example for all of us living in a more modern age on the other side of the Enlightenment, on the other side of modernity, to be able to see how theologians pre-modernity, pre-Enlightenment, actually interacted with one another in ways that did not also compromise their confessional convictions. And in this case, we see a striking example of Benjamin Keach uh, and another Baptist who we'll talk about here in a moment using Lutheran theologians to their advantage in one of the greatest, in my opinion, one of the greatest Baptist biblical theological works ever authored, and that is Tropologia. Now, um, I should probably start with a little bit of background concerning Tropologia, the work that we are going to be looking at. This is the work, after all, where Keech uses or seems to use uh, a few different Lutheran theologians in service of making his overall point. And I actually have a, uh, a, a title page from Tropologia uh, from 1682. I don't have it in my possession. I have a digital copy of it. Uh, nevertheless, it's very helpful in kind of understanding the layout of the work and the composition of the work. So if I can find that here, let's do this. I always have... Yeah, here we go. All right. So now, if you were to find a copy of Tropologia, whether it be a digital copy on something like Logos or some website, uh, or even more of a facsimile kind of copy that you might snag off of Amazon from an independent publisher, um, you're going to see that the work is usually characterized as a four-book work. So it's distinguished into four books. Um, this cover page from 1682 is uh, shows us that it was it was had also been printed in in three books. So the 1682 edition has it divided into three books. Now there are actually two authors of Tropologia, I, and and sometimes one of my frustrations is when you get a modern copy or kind of uh, a a a uh, what do you call it a not a republication but a um, a representation um, uh, of of Tropologia uh, in digital format or or, or whatever, you're going to see it 100% attributed to Benjamin Keach. Uh, now it should be attributed to Benjamin Keach, but there was actually another author named Thomas Delon, who was another Baptist in the 17th century, uh, and his story is another story in and of itself. Um, very sad story in terms of how his life here on this earth ended um, by essentially dying in prison as a result of neglect, hunger, or starvation. And so uh, Thomas DeLon was another particular Baptist that suffered at the hands of uh, persecutors uh, <clears throat> for, I believe, preaching without a license. And uh, so just a second here. Um, and so, and so that's another, that's another person worth 
actually worth checking out uh, and and learning about Thomas. Again, that's Thomas Delon. So when you're looking at the the title page of Tropologia, you see its full title is a key to open scripture metaphors. And then book one, containing sacred philology, or the tropes in scripture reduced under their proper heads with a brief explication of each, partly translated and partly compiled from the works of the learned by initials T.D., or Thomas DeLon. And then you have books two and three, containing a practical improvement, parallel-wise, of several of the most frequent and useful metaphors, allegories, and express similitudes of the Old and New Testament by initials B.K., not Burger King, but Benjamin Keach. And so this was obviously a collaborative effort, uh, as this early edition attests, um, between Thomas DeLon and Benjamin Keach. And so uh, it, it's difficult to say how much one or the other influenced uh, one or the other. Uh, throughout the duration of compiling the work. And so it's almost impossible to, to gauge just how much, you know, DeLon would have influenced Keach or Keach would have influenced DeLon. Suffice it to say, though, uh, that DeLon was, I believe, more formally educated than Benjamin Keach was, whereas Benjamin Keach was more of an autodidact. Um, he was well-read. He was educated. Um, but... Delon was formally educated and uh, had uh, a, a, a quite a quite an erudite mind. So uh, it, it's very possible that Delon was heavily influential on Keach as they as they compiled this work. Uh, the other you know kind of missing piece of information, at least on my end, is how close they worked together in this in this project. Whether or not they they you know collaborated in person frequently as they compiled the work or whether or not they kind of just worked independently. Uh, and then it was eventually, you know, put together at the publishing house. Um, but I would suspect that if you, if you read through the work, you see that it's, it's pretty seamless. Um, and, and so I would suspect that the, it was a, it was a closely collaborative effort between the both of them. Okay, so that's Tropologia. Again, this is a work usually attributed to Benjamin Keach, but it should be attributed to both Benjamin Keach and Thomas DeLon, who collaborated together as they worked through it. It's a massive volume, so I have a facsimile of Tropologia. I'm not blessed to have one of, you know, the first editions, as I know some people, uh, at least one person, has, but I, but I do have a facsimile, <clears throat> which is quite difficult to read, so I usually read it on Logos when I, when I need to. Um... And it's it's a large work. It's it's about a thousand pages or something like that. And uh, uh, and, and so it's 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 beefy. It's it's very useful. It is it is a fruitful work, and it is a worthy work for your consideration. So if you're able to get your hands on even just a facsimile of Tropologia, uh, I would recommend snagging that when you're able to. If you don't have a book list a mile long like I do already. Um, so as I mentioned, the the principal matter at hand in this episode is to discuss Keach and DeLon's use of Lutheran theologians. Now, there are, they interact with more than three Lutheran theologians, but I chose to, you know, they, they, they obviously have Luther <laughs> and interact with Luther in, in uh, Tropologia, but I chose to kind of bring out some of the other Lutheran theologians that they interact with to show that 
you know, they weren't just going to Luther because he was the most popular. Uh, they weren't just restricting their use of Lutheran theology to Luther since he was the, you know, kind of the uh, incendiary device uh, for the Reformation. They were actually interacting with uh, Luther's peers and then generations of Luther Lutherans that would follow after Luther, that second generation of Reformers, uh, and even uh, moving into kind of the post-Reformation era uh, in the case of someone like Johann Gerhardt. So they, uh, they definitely make use of, of Lutheran theologians in a more general sense than restricting their study to Luther by himself. And I think this is, is helpful for us to stop and consider, well, why as Baptists would they do that? Because for us, Baptists living in the 21st century— We've been taught uh, that, you know, to do that, to, to bring Lutheran theologians into service of our own theology would be compromise. That would be, uh, you know, uh, a, a compromise, not necessarily in Baptist theology, but just in Baptist practice. And I think you get a lot of that kind of language, not only following the uh, kind of the more downgrade era, 1850s onward, where there was a, a reaction against the encroaching theological liberalism of the 19th century, but it gets even more restrictive in the 1950s and 60s, where Baptists kind of uh, bring that reactionary posture to pass through really cutting themselves off and siloing themselves in what we usually term fundamentalism. Uh, the word fundamentalism has kind of become a bad word because it's usually associated with those who are schismatic and willing to silo themselves off from any other voice because they're theologically insecure and can't defend their own positions and, you know, just believe this because I say that's what the Bible says and so on and so forth. I think there's a lot of that that went on following the 50s and 60s and and not so much up into today, but uh, but somewhat it's still there. It's still there in a lot of areas you might not expect. Um, it looks different than the 50s and 60s, but it, but it's still there. Um, and so we've been we've we've kind of been brought up in a milieu that says, well, if you if you appeal to another theologian that falls without your theological tradition, for example, if you appeal to a Presbyterian from the 17th century, or if you appeal to uh, a Lutheran from the 16th century, or if you appeal to a, uh, a medieval theologian like Thomas Aquinas or Albertus Magnus or, you know, these uh, individuals living in, in the Middle Ages, then you're compromising because they were Roman Catholics, obviously, and, and so you're compromising your own theological position. Well, interestingly enough, in the 17th century, as Keech and, and Delon both Baptists, and the in the case of Benjamin Keach, his name appears on the Second London Confession of Faith, both committed Baptists did not view themselves as compromisers as they interacted with Lutheran theologians, and I don't think anybody really around them viewed them as compromisers either. So what changed from their culture to our culture? Uh, and I think that's a worthy point of consideration. You know, why were they able to kind of have this... Um, Catholic small c posture in terms of recognizing the one true faith, the operation of the Holy Spirit in more persons than just themselves, and even in more persons than just those involved directly in their theological tradition. 
uh, and we are less able to do that. And typically, when we see others do that, we we you know we scream compromise. Um, that wasn't the case in the 17th century. So I think this this shows a theological humility, a theological willingness to learn from others, even when those others fall without the purview of uh, one's own theological tradition. In this case, Keach and Delon are working uh, with three ba- uh, three Lutherans. That's at least three Lutherans. They Again, they, they appeal to Luther and some others as well. But the three that I'm going to be talking about here are Johann Brenz, Paul Laurentius, and Johann Gerhard. So I'm just going to go down the list. I'm going to I'm going to talk about these these individual Lutheran theologians, and then I'll 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 talk about an area where uh, Keach and Delon use them in Tropologia, and I'll and I'll read that citation, and I'll interact with it a little bit, and then I'll go on to <clears throat> to the next one. So I want to spend a little bit of time on this because I think it's really interesting. It's not something you hear about a lot, you know. Oh. Baptist theologians in the 17th century interacting with Lutheran theologians from the 16th century. You know, it's not a not a very skylined observation. So I thought I would make it and and uh, and maybe present it for your consideration. So um, the first one I would like to look at is Johann Brenz, Keach and Delon's interaction with Johann Brenz. Um, Johann Brenz finds more interaction in Tropologia than uh, than Paul Laurentius or Johann Gerhard, interestingly enough, and and even more than Luther. So Johann Brenz's name comes up about 19 times in Tropologia, whereas Luther's name comes up about 13 times or so. Now, I'm not saying that that means automatically that Brenz influenced Keach and Delon more than Luther. That's not what I'm saying, but they are sure to mention his name more than they do Luther. So that that indicates more direct interaction, at least. doesn't necessarily indicate more influence. And uh, Johann Brenz shows up in, in several different areas of, of Tropologia throughout. Uh, the, the part that we're going to interact with is, is the part where Keach and Delon uh, look at human adjuncts ascribed to God, and, and in this case, clothing. So we'll get to that here in a moment. But a little bit about Johann Brenz. Brenz was born in 1499. So, uh, you know, you see a birth date like that and you think, well, that's that's a first generation reformer right there. So he was born in 1499 in Weil-Württemberg in Germany. Uh, so he's a, for, he's a first generation reformer. Um, uh, he is, uh, of course, younger than Luther, but he is—he's uh, definitely Luther's contemporary. Uh, he supported Luther's views during Luther's own lifetime, and so he finds himself within what would come to be called eventually the Lutheran tradition. Uh, he was known and would have been known in Keach's time and Delon's time for writing the Sagrama Servicum. Uh, where he he expounds on Luther's doctrine of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist or in the Lord's Supper, uh, and he wrote that in 1525. So this is definitely a Lutheran theologian here. Uh, he he meets the Lutheran distinctives, if you will, especially when he is is writing on Luther's view and supporting Luther's view of of the Lord's Supper, which is would differ uh, from our view of the Lord's Supper. Um, and from the Reformed view of the Lord's Supper in general. So when they interact with Delon, or when they when they interact with Brenz, 
they interact with him on Psalm 45, 8. And this, again, this is just one area where they interact with him. There are others as well. But uh, Psalm 45, 8, they, they cite Psalm 45, 8, and then they say the mystical habit of Christ. In other words, Psalm 45, 8 is talking about that which God is clothed in. And obviously that's an analogy, uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's analogical language. It's not saying that God literally has clothes or anything like that. Um, but writing about that which this clothing symbolizes, Keach and or DeLon say, the mystical habit of Christ. And a habit, you know, we, we think of habits in relation to the virtues, um, but a habit was a medieval robe. It was like the robe a monk would wear. Uh, and so it's a, it's something that clothes the whole body. It, it, it shrouds the whole body, wraps around the whole body. It's something that you put on. And so it's associated with the virtues in the sense that we are to put on the virtues, uh, faith, hope, love, the theological virtues, but also the cardinal virtues as well. And, um, and so when he says the mystical habit, he's saying that's the mystical robe of Christ. And then he goes on and he says the celestial spouse. Now this is Keach and Delon's words. This isn't, this isn't Brens or Brentius, as he's called in Tropologia. Um, these are Keach and Delon's words. So they're saying the mystical habit of Christ, the celestial spouse, is described, upon which place Brens or Brentius thus paraphrases, all thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory places, whereby they have made thee glad. So they use a paraphrase from Johann Brens of Psalm 45a, which is talking about this quote-unquote, clothing of God. And Keach and DeLon ascribe that analogical clothing language to uh, the celestial spouse which adorns Christ with the gospel or adorns God with the gospel as it preaches it throughout the world. So the celestial spouse is, is the church, the body, and bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, they go on to say, uh, Keach and DeLon commenting on Brenz's use and paraphrase of the text, that is, all the garments wherewith thou art apparelled and which can be produced for thy use are not composed of wooden or vile materials, but brought from ivory and most precious repositories. For these are called the houses or palaces of garments. They yield no other odor but myrrh, aloes, and cassia, that is, a most fragrant and odiferous scent in which thou takest pleasure, that is, that most sweet which Christ himself and his apostles by preaching the gospel have spread not only in Judea, but in all parts of the world. And then they quote, cite Luke 10 and 2 Corinthians 2, 15. So that's, that's Keach and DeLon's use of, of Johann Brins, but then we have their use of Paul Laurentius, and that brings us to another Lutheran theologian, that they interact with. So, Paul Laurentius was born in 1544. He was born in 1544, studied at Leipzig, graduating in 1577. So, here we're not talking about someone born 50 years earlier, as was Brenz. Brenz was born in 1499. Laurentius here is born in 1554. And so, we're talking here about more of a second-gen reformer, uh, studied at Leipzig, graduating in 1577. He ends up a pastor and superintendent at, in, in Dryden before moving to Meissen, where he's, where he's going to die in 1624. So he makes it all the way up into the 17th century. This is kind of like post-Reformation territory. If the you know Reformation era ends around the 
the close of the 16th century, then the post-Reformation begins around the opening of the 17th century. And so he's kind of a transitionary figure here. Um, and he dies in 1624. He uh, was known for writing commentaries on the Old Testament, particularly in portions of uh, the Psalter. Uh, he wrote on the Lord's Prayer, wrote on the Passion of Our Lord. Um, and so was was uh, somewhat of uh, a lively figure of uh, the German Reformation. Um, Laurentius only finds place actually by name in Tropologia one time. So it's not as if you find Laurentius throughout Tropologia, kind of like you do with Brenz, but you still find Laurentius. He's still there. He's still a Lutheran theologian that is obviously influencing what is said and what is written in Tropologia to some measure. Now, the place where we find this happening is uh, concerning the universal church in Tropologia. So Keech and Delon are writing about the universal church, and they say this. Now, the universal body of believers is the inheritance of clergy, or clergy, if we must so call it, of God, Isaiah 19.25, which universal church is distributed into particular churches, as it were, by lots or parts. Neither is the term anywhere in Scripture peculiarly attributed to the pastors of the churches, as Laurentius and Gerhard upon 1 Peter 5.2 demonstrate. So here he's saying, you know, this, this whole idea of uh, the inheritance or clergy, it's not being attributed to pastors individually. Uh, it's not being at attributed to bishops individually. Uh, this is a universal church that is uh, dispersed throughout or distributed into particular churches throughout uh, the world. Uh, again, there and then and then using Laurentius and Gerhard approvingly, saying that Gerhard actually and Laurentius demonstrate this point uh, as they comment upon First Peter five two. Uh, and so here you kind of use you see a, a a dual invocation, if you will, of of Laurentius and uh, and Gerhard here in this section of Tropologia. Again, this is concerning the universal church. Uh, of Christ. Um, and that brings us to Gerhard. So we've got Brenz, Laurentius, two Lutheran theologians. Now we've got Gerhard, Johann Gerhard, uh, on, her, on human adjuncts ascribed to God with regard to locations. So this kind of comes in the first section that we looked at with regard to Brenz. Uh, this is on human adjuncts ascribed to God, but this time it's, it's not clothing being ascribed to God, it's location being ascribed to God in the scriptures that Keech and Delon are commenting on, and they bring Gerhard in to service uh, of their point. So a, a little bit about Johann Gerhard. He's born in 1582, so he's born even later than you see Paul Laurentius, and especially later than Johann Brins. And he's, he's born in, in Quedlinburg, Germany. Uh, he writes extensively. Uh, this is one of the most voluminous writers in the Lutheran tradition, probably in general, um, but especially in the 17th century. So he's, he's, he's writing voluminously, he's writing exegetical theology, polemical theology, dogmatic theology. He, he writes a 23-volume uh, work that is theological commonplaces. So uh, this is a very scholastic Lutheran thinker. Um, he ended up teaching at the University of Jena for a little over 20 years. Uh, University of Jena being established by Frederick of Saxony in 1547, uh, so about 40 years before 
a little less than 40 years before uh, Johann Gerhard was born. And that's where he would actually die in 1637. Um, and so they they use Johann Gerhard. Gerhard shows up about nine times, I think, by name in Tropologia. And they say this. Again, this is the this, this section on human adjects ascribed to God with regard to location. All right, so Scripture often attributes particular locations to God, like God is in this place or God is in that place. And so they're, they're dealing with that, all right, in light of God's omnipresence uh, and infinity. So they say this, And the learned Gerhard says, God is everywhere with respect to his essence, but he is said to dwell in heaven with respect to the more ample appearance of his majesty and glory. So the whole soul is in every part of the body, but most radically in the heart, most effectively in the head, because its most excellent effects are from thence produced. And so here you have an analogy drawn by Gerhard, used by Keech and Delon, an analogy between the human soul and body and God as the Bible ascribes, you know, place or location to him. And and, and what they're what Gerhard's saying is, you know, just like the human body, you know, the human soul fills the body. I mean, we wouldn't say that there's any place in the body where the soul is not, that the, the soul really is in the whole man. Um, but it, you know, it's, there's a, there's a particular manner of presence that scripture gives to the soul in relation to the heart, for example, and also in relation to the mind that, that the soul is in the heart and the mind in a peculiar way, uh, or in a distinct way, than it is in the rest of the body. Uh, or we might be able to say that the, the soul's presence is manifested or becomes more apparent in the heart and the mind. Uh, and likewise, God's presence is all over the place. There's no place where God is not. I've often described God's omnipresence in that way. There's no place where God is not. And there's no place where the whole God is not. All right, so it's not like a little bit of God is here and a little bit of God is over there. Omnipresence, classically uh, understood, would say there is no place where God is not, uh, and there is no place where all of God is not. Um, and so uh, Gerhard is saying similar to that. Uh, you know, we see it. We see a picture of that in the human soul and how it inhabits the the whole man, but. You know, with regard to God, he's present everywhere. There's no place where he's not, yet his glory is apparent in a particular place or a peculiar place. That is heaven. There's a there's a there's a a heightened appearance or manifestation of God's presence in heaven that the saints, uh, the glorified saints, get to experience, right? So um it, it's not that God is more present in heaven necessarily, like there's more of a quantity in God. God can't be quantified. Uh, but it is that there is a more perceptive, uh, a, a, a more ample appearance, Gerhard says, of God's presence. A, a, a less obscured, maybe we could say a less obscured uh, perception of God's presence in heaven, so that God is not more in heaven than he is anywhere else, yet he is experienced by the saints uh, in heaven to a degree that he's not experienced in, in the world. So there's a more ample appearance, Gerhard says. So it's interesting that, you know, he's drawing this analogy, which happened a lot, not only in Lutheran reformers, but also in the Reformed. Calvin in particular sees the body as kind of this 
microcosm of the uh, of the whole universe and of the heavens even. And so uh, there's there's uh, some overlap here. But there's a little bit of a bonus that I want to throw in here because uh, Keech and, and, and DeLon don't only use Gerhard here. They also uh, end up using Alcunius, and, who was a German Reformed theologian, and Polanus, who was another German Reformed theologian. And so, you know, commenting on this the same area, they cite Alcunius, God is therefore said to dwell in the heavens because the angels and the souls of blessed saints have a clearer and more illustrious prospect and knowledge of him. Again, God's not more there, but the saints experience him more there, if that makes sense. Um, and and these, these glorified saints have a, a clearer and more illustrious prospect and knowledge of him than the saints on earth can have by reason of their dwelling in so gross a habitation. So what he's saying there is that the saints on earth are in a state of, of sin and misery. They're per se, even Christians uh, are in a state of grace, yet their, their perception of God is often obscured by remaining sin and the effects of sin from others and so on. And then they cite Polanus saying, the scripture oftentimes says that God dwells in the heavens, not that he is there included, but to intimate that he is above all in majesty, power, and operation, so as that he cannot be hindered by any on earth, as also that our minds may be elevated above the world, so as that we may have no low or carnal or worldly thoughts of God, etc. And that really ends our survey of their use of these three theologians. There's much more that could be said. Um, I will say this, that interacting with German theologians, Keech and DeLon had opportunity to interact with some of the foremost Anabaptist theologians, which would have been characterized as radical reformers. And, you know, it's interesting that the particular Baptists in the 17th century were often accused of being Anabaptists, and today sometimes they're still linked with Anabaptism. Um, but interestingly enough, uh, Keech and DeLon are not interacting with the Anabaptists in Germany so much as they're interacting with the German reform. So they would have had opportunity, you would think, if they've got access to German theologians, why wouldn't they have access to someone like, uh, you know, um, Balthazar Hubmer or or uh, or some other Anabaptists that were uh, profound, uh, you know, just during kind of the earlier years of the Reformation? Why wouldn't why would they invoke them as much as they do, you know, these Lutheran theologians? You can say, well, these Lutheran theologians wrote more, and so they had more meat there, and so that's why they went to them. Um, but then again, you know, uh, to not even, to, to not feature Anabaptists in Tropologia as Lutheran theologians are featured, I think it shows a motivation and an identification of a particular theological tradition for Keech and DeLon. Uh, they are not, uh, thinking of themselves as Anabaptists. Uh, they're thinking of themselves as being found within, uh, the Reformed stream of thought following the Reformation, uh, and so they are, are are viewing themselves as as part of or as immediate heirs of the renewal effort of the Protestant Reformation. Um, and I don't think for a moment, you know, uh, Keech or DeLon would say, you know, we, uh, we began in the 17th century. Uh, when it comes to distinct Baptist things, um, 
not necessarily believer's baptism, but, you know, ecclesiology and things like that, uh, there may be uh, a, a more profound or pronounced uh, outbreak of that in the 17th century than than perhaps there was before, and, and certainly a, a codified orthodoxy emerged in the 17th century that did not exist before. Um, but I think Keech and, and, and Delon would say, you know, we're within the stream of, you know, the the Catholic faith. We're we're we we find ourselves within the stream of of these these Christians that went before us and and in whom God worked. And we don't agree with everything they did, but you know, Christ has built his church, and so we are at liberty to use those resources as we see fit in order to support our own confessional convictions. And so, very interesting study, I think, and I think it was. Uh, helpful for myself to just see how, you know, someone like Keech is is utilizing Lutheran theologians. Anyway, hopefully it was helpful if it was. Maybe it was helpful for someone else or will be helpful for someone else. And so uh, please be encouraged to to share this. Um, if you haven't already, do not leave here without subscribing to the channel if you're watching on YouTube and click that bell for continued notifications. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful rest of your day.